0: SNAP Production. Hello, welcome to the briefing. It is May 30. I'm Tom Tilley, joined by Antoinette Latouf. And Antoinette, you've been doing some work on a briefing about menstruation.
1: Yeah. So, Tom, menstruation is having a bit of a moment in Australia. You may remember Victoria and South Australia made tampons and pads free last year and the federal government poured $58 million into endometriosis in the recent budget, but with Spain becoming the first European nation to take steps to provide paid leave, and that's separate to sick leave, but specifically for period pain, and New Aussie research finding that one in three women feel that they need to hide their pain or endometriosis diagnosis from their employer. I guess it begs the questions, could we and should we be doing
0: more? Yeah, it's a very good question. And in the briefing, you're going to be speaking to health author and podcaster Yumi Steins.
2: It seemed like something that we were meant to completely shroud in secrecy. And that was part of being a successful woman, like never let them see behind the curtain of all the work that we're furiously doing to manage this
0: stuff. That's coming up in just a moment. First, here are today's headlines.
1: After a massive election loss, coalition MPs have gathered in Canberra to choose their leaders today. Peter Dutton is expected to be elected the new leader of the Liberals.
0: Peter Dutton, I think, is going to make an outstanding leader for the Liberal Party. And he's someone who I think is going to really bring us back to that centre-right perspective as we look to rebuild into the future. So that was Liberal Senator Holly Hughes there. Susan Lee is expected to be the Liberals' deputy leader. The National Party Room will also choose their leader today and Barnaby Joyce is facing two contenders for the position, Darren Chester, as well as his deputy, or might be former deputy, David Littleproud. We'll see what happens in the party room.
1: Have you done the numbers? Do you have the numbers to win? Uh,
0: We'll see what happens in the party room.
1: So, Tom, this is really interesting because I think the coalition has a bit of an identity crisis where the Liberals, more specifically, uh, you know, are they going to move more to the right or reclaim the blue ribbon seats? You know, I don't know, and perhaps make more of an effort to amplify women into leadership roles and don't ignore the environment. But it seems that if they do need to move more to the left, that there aren't that many people left standing that represent that faction within the Liberal Party.
0: Yeah, that's the strange position they're in, that the electorate has said they want them to move more to the left. But as you say, all of the contenders like Josh Frydenberg, for example, the sort of people who put their hand up to lead the party in that direction, aren't there anymore. So Mm -hmm. it's left to Peter Dutton to move the party more in that direction, who you'd argue would be the least likely candidate to do that. So it's going to be really interesting to watch.
1: Nine days after Aussies went to the polls, Labor could find out if it will win majority government today. So the final counts are underway with two more potential wins for Labor.
0: Yes, so in the Melbourne seat of McNamara, Labor incumbent Josh Burns is doing well, narrowly ahead of the Greens contender, and in Deakin, also in Victoria, Um, It's leaning towards the government by less than 700 votes.
1: So Labor currently has 75 seats and needs just one more to control the House of Representatives. Also Gilmore on the south coast of New South Wales. That's very close to the Liberals. Andrew Constance is a nose ahead there by just over 200 votes.
0: Yeah. So with those close seats, um, particularly with McNamara in Melbourne and Deakin in Victoria as well, That could get them to 77, which will be um, very interesting. The other news that's come out over the last uh, few days, over the weekend, is that the Greens have declared victory in Brisbane, which takes them to four lower house seats, which is a quadrupling of what they had before.
1: Former Labor Senator Christina Keneally, she's spoken about her loss to an independent in the western seat of Fowler. You know, As we know, she was parachuted in and uh, a local less high-profile woman, Too Lee, was elbowed out of the way. Keneally told nine newspapers, um, these are her words, I think the impact of the COVID lockdowns had far more to do with it and was far more at play on the day. Those harsh lockdowns made people more parochial and that she genuinely believes that whether the Labor Party ran her or anyone else, that they would have had the same challenges. And I just find this, you know, absolutely Pretty hilarious, um, but also, in my opinion, wildly inaccurate. I think people in the seat of Fowler really took umbrage with the fact that they had somebody who was a local um, candidate who was, you know, of Vietnamese heritage. And, you know, this is an electorate where 17% of the electorate speak Vietnamese. So, you know, sometimes you make mistakes, there's a loss. And one of the best things you can do is just go, okay, we got this wrong. I stuffed up, but it doesn't sound like Keneally's doing that.
0: Yeah, well, the lockdown is an interesting thing to bring up because it wasn't the Labor Party that introduced that. So to say that the pushback would be on Mm. the Labor Party for that when it was the New South Wales Liberal Party that made Mm. those choices, that also doesn't really stack up. And you may have heard that China struck that deal with the Solomon Islands, despite our um, fist pumping on the table. Well, now (laughs) China's foreign minister is making a push for new deals with 10 more Pacific nations, and there's a visit happening right now.
1: Wang Yi is meeting with regional leaders in Fiji and he's hoping to make China's security pact with the Solomon Islands a model for the region. And that includes things like policing, cyber security, maritime surveillance, even things like fishing rights and a creation of a free trade area. But this pact has raised major concerns in both Australia and the US with fears it could lead to an increased Chinese military presence in the Pacific.
2: It is in all of that interests, uh, for there to be uh, peace in the region and security in the
3: region, and uh, not not talk up uh, catastrophe.
0: Anthony Albanese there. So now we're on this mission to repair our relationships in the Pacific. The newly minted Foreign Minister Penny Wong has already been to Fiji and is expected to visit more of our neighbours in the near future. And her main pitch appears to be that we'll do more to help them on climate change than the previous Morrison government. And... When she's trying to sell us relative to China, she's saying that our support comes with no strings attached. So we're going to find out quite quickly, I think, how that message is going down and if it's enough to sway these nations Mm -hmm. away from accepting Chinese support, which I imagine will be pretty strong and come with a lot of money.
1: Yes, so climate change, as you said, is a major issue for the Pacific region. But China's also the world's biggest carbon emitter. So, yeah, it will be interesting to see how that plans out. We have had some Pacific leaders already come out and say, no, we're not doing deals, um, but there's still many more meetings um, and plenty of negotiations yet to come. In some huge sporting news, an Australian has won a cycling grand tour for only the second time ever. Jai Hindley has won the Giro d'Italia.
3: On the streets of Verona, right outside the famous Roman amphitheatre, Vini Vidi, Hindley! He wins the Giro d'Italia.
0: Yeah, so this is big news. So there's only three Grand Cycling Tours. Um, there's this one, the Giro d'Italia, the Tour of Italy, the Tour of Spain, which is called the Vuelta, and the Tour de France, which Cadell Evans won 11 years ago, the only other Australian to win a Grand Tour. So here we have Jai Hindley, the 26-year-old from Perth, uh, the first Aussie to win the Giro d'Italia.
3: To come away with the win here after three weeks of racing, it's like... Really incredible when, uh, yeah. yeah, it's just, i um, really just lost for words.
0: These tours, Antoinette, are so gruelling. As he said, they're three weeks of racing where they get out each day and go head-to-head with the world's best. So just takes incredible endurance, both physically and mentally. And he was riding up there in the top of the general classification for the whole tour and then just um, came good in these last few days.
1: Amazing news. He says he's lost all words. He's probably exhausted as well. In other sporting news, the Blue Squad has been finalised ahead of State of Origin 1, and two big names have been left out, Josh Adokar and Jake Trevojevic.
0: And the Maroons' lineup will be named today, although it was already leaked to the Courier-Mail. Billy Slater, the coach, is expected to name four new faces, four debutants. So here we go. The hype starts to build ahead of Origin 1, which is on June 8th which is just next week.
1: We'll catch you later, Tom. We're going to talk about menstruation and the argument for paid leave and also why this shouldn't be considered a woman's issue. It's that time of the month. Your red friend pays you a visit. And what about Aunt Flo? For so long, menstruation has not only been hidden by euphemistic language, it's been ignored by policymakers. And here's the thing period cycles and the pain and discomfort is not just a woman's issue. One in nine Aussie women live with endometriosis. That's a disease which often causes debilitating pain and infertility. And really bad period pain affects a woman's mental health, relationships, ability to work, and even gets in the way of being able to do stuff around the house. So it's not just a bit of a sore tummy, and it can significantly impact workplace productivity and even home life. Period pain leave, which is separate to sick leave, is one step closer to being approved in Spain should Australia follow suit. Yumi Steins is an author and women's health podcaster. Her book, Welcome to Period, tried to broach all the stuff that was too awkward to openly talk about. Yumi, for so long, we haven't even been able to really properly talk about periods and instead we're using all these weird words and phrases. What are some that you've loved or hated?
2: Oh uh, like I've, I'm on the blob is my least favorite. I think that it is just very visceral and I can when I hear it I can feel I feel like I'm on my period. <laughs> But you're right, and I think it's tempting for people to euphemise around periods, but the more we kind of just use the right language, the better it is, I think, for everybody because there's no room for misunderstanding or, for, you know, just for getting things wrong. And it also sets up young people in particular to kind of be in full embrace of the scientific kind of background of what it is to bleed and then how to deal with any problems that they may encounter.
1: And why did you write a book about periods? Like weren't mums and older sisters and aunts doing a good enough job breaking it down?
2: <laughs> so I'm one of four kids and I have two older sisters. My mum was the same. She came from a really big family, but we both experienced period shame and it's so weird to think that you know to grow up in a modern culture in this society and still feel really shy to tell my PE teacher that I had my period mm. to really blush beet red to have to buy pads or tampons and even just the word pad to kind of go oh oh god and a lot of that is just internalized because mm. we see those around us flinching and cringing there was really no talk even from my older sisters to to word me up about what to expect And so what you find is young kids who are, say, 12 or 14 going on their first camping holiday or staying at a friend's house, which is totally normal behaviours, encounter problems because of menstruating that nobody kind of set them up to succeed with. So they bleed on their friend's sheets or they go camping and they don't pack any supplies. So, Mm. oh my goodness, why didn't we think of this? And for a lot of us, it felt like we were the only idiots that didn't know or that spilt on our sheets or or turned up to school with a mark on our dress. And what we wanted to do, Dr. Melissa Kang and I was just really normalise what it is to have a period and then have really frank conversations about how to manage it, because it's actually like, it's pretty basic stuff for 51% of the population.
1: And it's not necessarily uh, just about fifty-one percent of the population. The more you normalize it, the more men can be part of the conversation. So I'm one of five girls and two boys, and the youngest is a boy. Um, and he became so accustomed to everything around period. So sometimes one of the sisters would yell out, "Michael, can you get me a pad?" And he'd go into the drawer. And I remember he'd probably seven or eight, and his response, "Sis, which one? With the wings or not?" Um, <laughs> It it really doesn't have to be that complicated.
2: It really doesn't. And I love the joyfulness around that. It's just a fact of life. So you can massage the shame and turn it into something, or you can massage the openness and really just be accepting.
1: And let's talk about that shame because your podcast, Ladies, We Need to Talk, it's five plus years old, but women Mm. were still talking about the shame associated with periods, let alone, you know, the complications and the pain and the way it gets in the way of life.
2: Yeah, and it seems like we've been conditioned to think that managing it secretly was part of our charter as successful feminine women, you know, like to talk about it or to complain, to need time off, um, to to need to medicate or even see doctors or have a surgery because of, say, endometriosis. It seemed like something that we were meant to completely shroud in secrecy. And that was part of being a successful woman, like never let them see behind the curtain of all the work that were furious. Doing to manage this stuff. So, in particular, things like PMS, which until the 80s was thought of as perhaps a made-up thing, Mm. (laughs) and endometriosis and terrible period pain, which are three different things, they weren't taken seriously as real medical conditions. So to be able to speak about those, manage them openly with help from health professionals really can help people. And so being able to speak openly with, say, your school, um, your PE teacher like I couldn't because I was shy, um, and, of course, our employers, that will make a huge difference in our qualities of life.
1: So Spain is on its way to joining South Korea and Indonesia in offering paid menstrual leave, and that's, uh, I'll point out, separate to your days of sick leave. So the Spanish bill entitles workers experiencing period pain to as much time off as they need. And it's not the employer who foots the bill, um, but the state social security system. Is it time Australia considers something like this?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a glorious initiative and I'd love to see it replicated all over the world. What I find is people are worried that that will be milked and exploited, you know, and we'll all be clutching our wounds and going, oh, I must have time off work. I couldn't possibly finish that report. Mm. But what we'll see, I think, is... If people understand what it is, that it's not going to be snatched away from them, then they will use it when they need to. And for a lot of us, we won't need to use it. And if our work is sufficiently enjoyable, we'll hopefully want to be at work. And if we're using... paid menstrual leave as an excuse not to be at work, then perhaps work sucks.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Spain's proposal has divided politicians and even actually some unions, um, saying that it may actually stigmatise women in the workplace and favour the recruitment of men. Do you think that's a fair enough concern or a cop-out?
2: I think it's a pretty big cop-out, really. Like I said, I don't think that the majority of women will need to take this up. And if they do, it'll be bloody marvellous for them. They'll come back better for it. What I see time and again is women who are busy, particularly those with children or with caring roles, and then add to that uh, juggling a health condition, are the most effective workers. Mm. They are least interested in wasting time in chit-chat by the water cooler. So if you want a job done, you ask a busy woman. That's basically the way that I have philosophised my entire life as an adult. <laughs> this definitely applies. To be honest, this idea that women won't be recruited, I think it's misogynistic. But I also understand where it's coming from in that sometimes recruiters are misogynistic and they mm. may be looking for an excuse to exclude women from workplace. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important for people's spiritual health to go, yeah, I'm not just a brain at a laptop with nothing else in between. There's no interface. Mm -hmm. The body is part of you and and being reverent and respectful of that is really, really powerful.
1: That was Yumi Steins, host of Ladies We Need To Talk podcast. Now to Dr. Mike Armour, He's a health expert at Western Sydney University and the chair of Endometriosis Australia Research Committee. And he's going to break down the difference between period pain and endometriosis and chat about his new research. Dr. Mike Arma, endometriosis and period pain are often linked, um, but they're not exactly the same thing. So what do we know about how many women live with endometriosis and how many women live with severe period pain?
3: So there is two major causes of period pain. We call them primary and secondary dysmenorrhea, which is just a fancy way of saying period pain. Mm -hmm. Primary dysmenorrhea is when there's no structural cause in the pelvis for the pain. And that's by far the most common. And around 90% of young menstruators under the age of 25 will report at least moderate period pain pain quite regularly. Endometriosis is where tissue similar to the lining of the uterus is found outside the uterus. And severe period pain is one of the common symptoms. And that affects around one in nine women and those assigned female at birth in Australia.
1: And how important is it to understand that severe period pain, whether or not it's linked to endometriosis, is can be incredibly debilitating? It's more than a tummy ache. And it's often difficult to see and it's a bit of an invisible illness. Can, can you talk about the severity for those who are perhaps thinking, oh, well, you know, take some Panadol and get on with it?
3: So many different things come in here. It's a narrative that's been around for a long time. You know, and we hear it from women themselves saying, you know, period pain, oh, it's just part of being a woman. You just have to put up with it. It's just normal. But it's not necessarily. A big issue is that because so many women experience period pain, I think there's an assumption that all period pain is similar to the period pain that they might have had. So you know, you might have someone who has a bit of mild discomfort on the first couple of days, which is manageable by taking an ibuprofen or using a hot water bottle, or perhaps just, it's not that severe. Bundled into the same group, who also has quote unquote period pain, is someone who's in the bathroom, pale, sweating, vomiting, ready Mm. to pass out. By bundling it in together is just one thing, period pain, we lose the important nuance that it's like saying, you know, if you've got a slight headache from, you know, perhaps not having enough water and then saying, well, someone who has a cluster headache, you know, who's debilitated, you both have headaches, sure, but they're not really the same thing.
1: So Indonesia and South Korea, and now Spain, is one step closer uh, to approving period pain leave, and that's separate to sick leave. Is this something Australian legislators should consider?
3: I think they should, but I would like to say I'm not sure that I think it should be constrained just to period pain, and also I'm not sure it should just be constrained to leave. I think we really need to be thinking about how to support people who have menstrually related conditions and this can be everything from period pain to things like PMDD, which is a severe form of PMS, Mm -hmm. to endometriosis. Leave is definitely something that some people will want, but I think we also need to think about how do we support people if they want to be at work? Can they manage their timetable a little bit better? If they wake up with pain, can they shift their meetings? Do they have the agency? Do they have the control to do that? But the important thing is that we know that one size does not fit all. Someone who's a school teacher, for example, is going to have very, very different requirements from someone who's a plumber. So we need to think about how do we support people across a range of different industries because their needs and challenges are going to be so different.
1: Dr. Mike Armer, Chair of Endometriosis Australia Research Committee. And there are a couple of big takeaways for me there. More than just period pain leave, we really need that holistic approach to tackle something that impacts more than half of the population. And also, I'm on the blob is a terrible euphemism. Like we just need to call it what it is, period. Tomorrow on The Briefing, Australia's fight for the Pacific. What will the future look like and how concerned should we be about China?
2: Listener.